Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, the Connecticut Audubon Society releases its latest State of the Birds report. What birds are at risk where we live? Coming up, we hear from Connecticut Audubon's Tom Anderson and from scientist Brooke Bateman. She'll explain how climate change affects birds and we'll learn about natural climate solutions. First, scientists warned us since 1970, nearly 3 billion North American birds have disappeared. Ornithologist Peter Mara was co-author of that startling 2019 paper in the journal Science. Today, where we live, Mara joins us to talk about what needs to be done to bring those bird populations back. And what have you noticed about birds where you live? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Pete Mara is Professor of Biology and the Environment and Director of the Earth Commons at Georgetown University Institute for Environment and Sustainability. Pete joins us on Zoom. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. I know our listeners have seen and read about 3 billion birds since 1970 disappearing. So remind us how we got here, Pete. Well, um, around 2017, some colleagues and I started to look at the data and started to become quite startled at what we were seeing. And we started to to pull together an unprecedented and formal analysis of, of all the data sets, mainly citizen science data sets, things like the breeding bird survey, Christmas bird counts, um, and other more structured, more formal uh, counts that had been done in the U.S. and Canada, and started to really figure out and uncover that we're actually losing birds at a faster rate than we thought we were before. And not just the species that were uncommon before, what we're now seeing is that these species that we once thought were quite common, species like blackbirds and several species of shorebirds, were also becoming less and less common. And so that was in 2017. Here we are in 2021. Uh, so since that time, how has the, the birding community and scientists, you know, what have you been looking at and thinking about in terms of uh, recovering this population, Pete? Yeah, so we published that paper in Science, which really uh, has, has shocked the, the world in many, in many respects. Uh, and you don't publish a paper like that and, and go back to your day job uh, doing science and research. You, you, you start scratching your head and you start really thinking carefully about what do we do to help these species recover? Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that while we're seeing this in birds, we're seeing this in a lot of species. We're, we're living in something called the sixth mass extinction. And we need to start developing a strategy for recovering these populations to stop the declines. And birds are the best group of species to do this. And I think if we do it for birds, we can help a lot of a lot of species. But but what we what we basically came to the conclusion of was that conservation and the way we're doing it is probably not enough. It's not working. And we need to reimagine what we're doing for bird conservation. 
So let's dig into that more when we think about the tools that we've had, um, examples of how we've addressed pat past crises, Pete, and you know why what we have in our toolbox today doesn't necessarily help the contemporary problems we have before us. Yeah, I think one, you know one of the examples we we can look at in the past was DDT, and DDT was this broad scale pesticide, uh, major threat that we we sprayed in the environment to kill mosquito populations. And then all of a sudden we realized that, well, birds were, were dying, birds were sitting on scrambled eggs instead of the nice hard shells and, and, uh, um, and allowing nestlings to develop fully until they hatched. And we had a book come out by, by you know, one of my heroes, Rachel Carson. Um, and it ended up that we stopped using DDT and no species went extinct from the use of DDT. They came close. But thankfully, legislation like the Endangered Species Act um, were, was able to stop the decline and protect species like the bald eagle, the peregrine falcon, the osprey. Think about the number of ospreys we now see on the Connecticut coastline. That's because of legislation like the Endangered Species Act that stepped in and stopped any species from going extinct. In fact, all those species have now recovered. That's an important lesson and a reason for, for being hopeful for this current crisis we're in. When we think about uh, in your research, Pete, looking at uh, migration and further declines, can you talk about what you have seen in your research and what your colleagues are alarmed about, in particular bird species? Yeah. And so, you know, growing up in Connecticut, I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut, spent a lot of time at places like the Westport Nature Center and the New Haven. And when I was growing up, common nighthawks were really common throughout Connecticut, as were things like uh, yellow-billed cuckoos and golden warblers. These are examples of species that have declined by over 50%. Wood thrush is a species that's declined by over 70%. That means that three out of four wood thrush are now gone from the time in my lifetime, in my lifetime. And so I've devoted my entire life to understanding things that are causing these declines. And that's one of the most alarming things <laughs> from our papers that in most cases, we don't know what the causes of decline are. So unlike the DDT issue, where we knew it was DDT, we could address the DDT problem. It's, it's a variety of things. It's multiple and interacting factors that are probably causing the decline of species like the wood thrush and the common nighthawk and the golden wing warbler. And so we've got to bring our best science to the table now and really tackle these individual species before they get to the endangered species consideration. Because at that point, they're closer to extinction they're, they're now become, they would become a, a much more acrimonious issue among politicians, and it's going to cost us a lot more money to bring them back. So we're trying to bring the best science to the table now to figure out what's causing the declines of, of many of these species. You can join our conversation with Pete Mara, Professor of Biology and the Environment, also Director of the Earth Commons at Georgetown University Institute for Environment and Sustainability, as we talk about uh, the need uh, for efforts, uh, both locally and nationally, even internationally, to look at um, how to recover uh, the bird population. Three billion birds lost since 1970. You can join us if you have a question or an observation from where you live. We just heard Pete talk about the wood thrush. You know, Pete, I don't think I've ever seen seen the wood thrush, and I do love uh, birds, and I'm always out uh, looking um, at them as well. Again, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So what would you say is the number one um, cause? Um, you said that you know some of the decline, scientists are still trying to understand the factors, but would you say it's habitat loss? 
Yeah, yeah. By, by far, we think habitat loss is prime, probably the driving factor. Uh, and remember, many of these species, like the wood thrush, and by the way, you probably have heard of wood thrush, but maybe not seen a wood thrush, which is um, the tricky thing about many of these birds, okay. but also <laughs> the most marvelous thing about these birds. But a species like the wood thrush that breeds in Connecticut, that, that wood thrush, after it finishes breeding, it then goes on this remarkable migration, primarily at night, all the way down to Central America, where it spends the majority of the annual cycle. And things that are happening there, habitat loss, spraying of pesticides, invasive species like cats, climate change, factors happening there, as well as factors happening during migration and on the breeding grounds are likely contributing to some degree to its loss, to the population loss, to its ability to survive. And so, you know, we need to sort of think carefully about how many of these migratory species, and most of them are migratory species, how things like habitat loss are impacting their their population sizes. But that's not a trivial question. Uh, it's a very difficult one to get at, but we're now, we now have some of the scientific tools to address those issues. So while we need to continue to think about broad scale threats like habitat loss and climate change, for a certain, certain group of species, the ones that are spiraling close to that endangered species listing, we need to elevate them to uh, what we're calling a species on the brink list where we bring that science together to try to understand where can we spend our money to protect them the most? Where can we limit the habitat loss or understand the threats and try to implement conservation measures to get the biggest bang for our buck and actually try to get some protection so these populations can rebound. And that's, that's, our, that's our emphasis, that's our motivation now. I think sometimes in these discussions, people look to see to think about, you know, what can government do? But private landowners have a place in this discussion as well. When we think about um, habitat and conservation, can you talk about that, Pete? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the U.S. is in private lands, whether it's individual homeowners or it's or it's, um, you know, private private companies that own lots of land. Uh, there are incentive programs that are out there that uh, pr help protect um, habitat that's important for things like grassland species or, or, um, or even in your own yards. You know, individuals are often thinking, I can't do anything myself, but actually by keeping cats indoors, by planting native plants that provide really important food for birds, by reducing the collisions with windows, there's all kinds of things that individuals can do. And just by sharing that information with neighbors, that collective action can actually scale up to be something that's important. So while our effort right now for this group called Road to Recovery is at the species level, um, we still need to address these broad scale threats as much as possible to minimize what we're doing individually to birds and other, other wildlife. It's really, it's really critical. You mentioned uh, cats, and I know you've written about this. I know many people that are listening love nature and also have cats, and some of them let their cats outside. Talk about the detrimental impact of that on the bird population, Pete. Yeah, cats, unfortunately, you know, while they, while they are wonderful pets, they're really interesting animals. I've owned a cat. His name is Tukas. Um, I, I think cats are just remarkable because they have such really amazing animal behaviors that we don't get ne to necessarily see all the time. But cats also are predators. That's what they do. That's, that's, it's in their blood. And so when we irresponsibly let them outside and roam to kill birds, again, collectively, that scales up to take out over a billion, between a billion and three billion birds in the U.S. alone per year. Cats around the world are responsible for, for 40 species extinctions of, of birds, 63 species 
extinctions in total, and they threaten another 400 species around the world, and not just on islands. They also spread diseases, things like Toxoplasma gondii, uh, and a variety of other sorts of uh, diseases. And these are both owned and unowned cats. And so cats are one, one of the threats that we should be able to get, get on top of, because it's not good for cats to be outside either. Cats that live outside have half the lifetime, half the lifespan of cats that are indoors. So while we think it's okay, it's really not. So if you own a cat and you want your cat to get outside, I get it. I totally understand. But put it on a leash or put it on in a catio. Don't let it out of your control. Uh, that's how we have to start approaching this problem. It's just a, another example of where we can be more sustainable with our environment by our individual actions. I love that your cat is named Tukis. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you can join us uh, with your questions for ornithologist Pete Mara, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, you mentioned that um, it may not be common to see the wood thrush, but we may hear them. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What would I be listening to uh, when I'm outside, maybe to hear a wood thrush in the forest? Yeah, so a wood thrush is this amazing flute has this amazing flute-like song. So in mid, they're only here in the breeding season, of course. So in mid-May and June and July, in a nice large tract of forest, if you go out early in the morning or just at dusk, and all of a sudden you hear a bird that sounds like a flute, I guarantee it's probably a thrush, and it might be a wood thrush. There are there are several species of thrushes that that breed in your area, but also migrate through and might be singing. But in June, it's, it's likely a wood thrush. Mm. Listen okay, to that flute. And, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you said that because I think I have heard that, uh, in, as you mentioned, near dusk uh, in the, close to the summer months. Can you talk more about um, some of the birds that we see in Connecticut that are at risk? Um, I know we want to avoid listing, as you mentioned, them on the Endangered Species Act, because then you have the, the regulatory authority at play. That costs taxpayers millions of dollars. So let's talk more about that, Pete. Yeah, you know, one species that we're working on right now is the yellow-billed cuckoo. And the yellow-billed cuckoo is this uh, remarkable bird. It's, it's a fairly slim bird that's about as big as a robin, but it's, it's a tricky bird to see. It's, it's really um, uh, very curious, kind of darts through the trees, eats a lot of caterpillars, and uh, usually follows uh, uh, outbreaks of, of caterpillars, like things like gypsy moths and things, things species like that. But uh, its its populations have declined across the United States. The western cuckoo is now, unfortunately, threatened. It's a subspecies of the yellow-billed cuckoo. It's now officially threatened. And the eastern cuckoo, including in Connecticut, is declining extremely rapidly. And again, they only breed in the U.S. So they're here from about May until August. And we thought that they all went down to South America. South America turns out it's a pretty big place. And if you want to understand where like, Connecticut cuckoos are going versus Illinois cuckoos, we didn't know. We just thought they all went to South America. So thankfully, the devices that we can put, put on their backs have, have shrunk to the size of, of about two grams now. And that means it's less than about 3% of the body weight of the bird. And we can put this device on the back of a cuckoo once we capture it. And that device pings a satellite that's, that's, that's orbiting the earth. And then that sends us uh, a message, a geolocation, of where that bird is so we can track these cuckoos around the world as, or as, as they move into South America. And we've discovered that cuckoos, this is work with a, a postdoc of mine, Callie Stanley, she's leading this work. The yellow-billed cuckoos from throughout the United States are not going to 
all of South America, they're actually migrating down to a small area known as the Gran Chaco of South America. It's, it's southern Bolivia, northern Argentina, and uh, northern Paraguay. It's a fairly small area relative to the entire area of South America. And that area is being decimated for cattle grazing, for beef, and for soybean farming as well. So enormous amounts of habitat has been lost there. And we think that's probably the primary driver of, of the loss, the decline of yellow-billed cuckoos. So we're already finding what we're calling the smoking gun of cuckoos, and we can target a much smaller geographic area for conservation. It's not going to be easy because we need to start thinking about our conservation actions internationally. It's not always things in our backyard. It might be in someone else's backyard. And we need to go down there and sort of, and people are doing this, try to figure out exactly how we can do more effective land conservation in places like the Grand Chaco. But, um, you know, it's all connected. It's, it's a primary, primary driver of that habitat loss is our desire to eat beef. And that's, that's, a, that's a problem. You're hearing Pete Mara again here on Where We Live, Professor of Biology and the Environment, Director of the Earth Commons, that's Georgetown University Institute for Environment and Sustainability. Uh, Pete mentioned the road to recovery. We're going to talk about that after the break. Again, three billion fewer birds in North America since 1970. Do you have questions about what you can do to reverse this? We'll talk more about that. Also, climate change right after the break. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How can we help recover bird species at risk of extinction? We're talking about this today with the release of the 2021 Connecticut State of the Birds Report by the Connecticut Audubon Society. Coming up, we'll talk more about some of the birds and trouble that we see in our state. With us on Zoom is ornithologist Pete Mara, professor of biology and the environment, also director of the Earth Commons, a Georgetown University Institute for Environment and Sustainability. And with us now on Zoom is Dr. Brooke Bateman, director of climate Science at National Audubon Society. Brooke, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me this morning. 
You're also featured in this uh, this latest State of the Birds report. Uh, you have written, birds are indeed the quintessential canaries in the coal mine. Their decline signals broad-scale eco- ecosystem decay, an ecosystem that humans equally depend on. So tell us about uh, your research and what birds tell us about climate change, Brooke. Yeah, so I think birds are kind of a wonderful conduit to understanding climate change. Climate change can be this very abstract concept of, oh, what does one and a half or two degrees or three degrees Celsius global warming mean? I I think that birds really have this lens of showing us what's happening in our own backyards. And so we can really um, look to birds to see what's going on. And so we say birds tell us because birds are so entwined with the environment and they're really kind of a signal for what's going on. Earlier, Pete talked about DDT and how we sort of figured out what was going on because we were seeing less birds. We were uh, having declines, especially noticeable in our raptors. Um, And so I grew up on Long Island and never saw ospreys uh, until recently. And that's because we um, figured it out because birds were that signal that there was something going on. Um, And so once we did something and took action, now we can see ospreys all over Long Island Sound. And it's just a, a really fantastic conservation success. But I think, again, honing back to birds, it really brings it back to our backyard. It's not polar bears in the the Arctic, it's birds in our backyard, and we're already seeing changes. Climate change is not a future problem, it's a now problem. Um, And I think that what we're seeing is that birds are already responding to climate change. But we also have to look into the future as well so that we can be proactive about our conservation planning. Um, And our study and our science shows that two thirds of birds are at risk to uh, severe amounts of range loss and potentially extinction in certain locations due to climate change if we don't take action now. So we talk about action now, uh, natural climate solutions as part of um, some um, actions that we can take. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I think Pete talked a lot about the biodiversity crisis um, and the extinction that we're, we're facing right now, but we're also facing not only a biodiversity crisis, we're also facing a climate change crisis. Natural climate solutions are a, a solution that sort of bring these two crises together and provide a pathway forward to address both of them at the same time. Um, there was a lot of talk about this recently at the COP26 in Glasgow that we really need to address both of these crises together because they are related to each other. And natural climate solutions, what they are is it's the ability to of the natural world, of trees, of soils, of plants in general, to store carbon. And so by doing that, they're pulling carbon dioxide, greenhouse, the greenhouse gas, which is a major contributor to climate change, out of the atmosphere and into the ecosystem and storing it in a way that um, can help stabilize climate change. So they're really a wonderful solution for climate change. But in doing so, we're also providing habitat for, for wildlife, including birds. When uh, you mentioned that you're on Long Island and when we think about uh, maybe shorebirds that are at risk, can you talk more about what we see here in our state? Yeah, so Long Island and, and Connecticut are very similar in having wonderful extensive coastline that are just beautiful beaches and, and marshlands. Um, and what we're seeing is that uh, a lot of these areas have become degraded. So the coastal ecosystems are really interesting because they provide a lot of habitat, but they're also very attractive to to people. And so we have seen a lot of development and habitat loss across the coasts of of both of these states. Um, And species like the piping plover, uh, this is an endangered species, federally listed. Um, It is losing a lot of its habitat and there's a lot of human pressures. And so when you have a lot of human activity on beaches, it can affect their nesting because they nest on the ground. Um, This is also a species that's highly vulnerable to climate change because it's anticipated to lose, I think, 100% of its range if we don't do anything about climate change in both Long Island and Connecticut. 
if we get to that three degrees Celsius global warming, um, which is beyond the tipping point of, of uh, kind of ecosystem degradation that we can handle. And so a piping plover is gonna have this in increased pressure of both human development as well as climate change. Um, similar species uh, that we have to be concerned about is a marsh, a coastal marsh species, the salt marsh sparrow. Uh, this species is a vulnerable species and it also is at risk to uh, sea level rise. And so the issue with sea level rise is that it's going to inundate these marshlands and um, prevent the habitat for this species from occurring, um, particularly if uh, what, what we have, we kind of call this squeezing out effect where we're having sea level rise affect the species from the coast um, because of climate change and also increased urbanization and habitat loss from inland, kind of uh, preventing the, their habitat from occurring and squeezing it, uh, squeezing it so much that there's just no much, no, none left for it. So I think these are two species that we really need to think about, but also both would benefit from natural climate solutions. You're hearing Brooke Bateman, Director of Climate Science at National Audubon Society. If you have a question, 888-720-9677. David is calling in from Glastonbury. David, what did you want to share? Oh, hello. Um, I was listening earlier, and there was uh, some talk about how individuals can do things to help with the birds and the habitat in general. And I decided to call in and talk about my personal experience and a uh, question about what I can, what resources I can call on from the state. Mm -hmm. So I just moved out of a townhouse complex um, because of the I, basically, I was receiving harassment and fines for doing things to try to help with um, the environment there. They have invasive shrubbery as part of their 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 shrubbery system, and that shrubbery is all over the woods around there. There's an open space area that this is part of, and dozens, if not hundreds of trees have already fallen over and died. They're covered with oriental bittersweet. There's false buckthorn growing everywhere, and almost almost as bad as the bittersweet is the Siberian uh, honeysuckle, and the whole place is basically dying, and it's spreading out to adjacent properties. And no matter what I've I've done, I've, I've basically been met with a stone wall. They're like they don't care. Mm -hmm. um, and when I do things like make compost they find me. If I clean up some of the dead wood or, you know, kill some of the vines, they find me. Um, basically, if I do anything at all, and I find this horrifying, and I would like to know if there's a way to get legal help, I mean, sort of a, as a whistleblower, to say, listen, guys, these guys are, are actively destroying the environment by refusing not only to do anything on their own property, but harassing people who do. Well, David, I'm not sure if our guest can give you advice on, on the legal part of it, but we do know that invasive plants uh, do have a, an impact on a certain bird species. Uh, Brooke, I'm thinking about some of the turns on Great Gull Island and some of the work that's being done uh, to help uh, with the breeding population there. Uh, what can you tell, uh, David, in terms of local action also? Yeah, I think this is a this is a great um, thing to bring to everybody's attention, and I think that there one of the things that we do at National Audubon Society is is try to work with our, our local 
towns, governments doing proclamations and, and ordinances. And I think that there it has to be sort of a grassroots approach to get to kind of educate these folks of what's going on. And I mean, invasive species are, are just detrimental to the environment altogether. And they don't support as much um, healthy biomass like, like um, insects for our birds. And so we really do want to promote native plants. And so I think one of the ways that we can really start to try to go into that is to um, first educate, but also work with local chapters, work with Connecticut Audubon to see what sort of local ordinance and proclamations you can do to help within your particular town. Um, as well as um, one of the things that I think is wonderful is education of the general public and native plant gardens that people can come and learn about why native plants are so much better than invasive species. And so, unfortunately, I, I don't know enough about your particular situation and, and location, but I think that if you can start to work at the town level um, and connect with other like-minded people to sort of get a movement going, I think that um, that is, an, is certainly a way that you can move forward. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Pete Mara is still with us from Georgetown. Um, we were talking to Brooke, of course, about natural climate solutions uh, as part of uh, looking at recommendations and solutions out of this State of the Birds report, uh, thinking about um, this road to recovery, as you mentioned, uh, Pete. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, so there are a variety of things we've got to we've got to do uh, around um, protecting species and try to recover them. And most of our conservation efforts have been really broad scale conservation, protecting land and, and, and anywhere we can or reducing threats like I've done with cats or, or changing the landscape with native plants. And we don't want to reduce any of those efforts. But what we're saying now is that species are slipping through the cracks and we can't let species slip through the cracks. We have to now figure out what species we need to focus on. And we've done that. We've got a list called species on the brink. And this is species like black duck and wood thrush and golden wing warbler, common nighthawk, some of these species we've talked about already, and really dig into the science, the natural history, the biology of these species throughout their annual cycle and try to understand what's limiting their populations, what's causing their populations to, to decline, where specifically. So if we were to do something on the ground with humans, to protect these species and reduce the threats, uh, that's where we need to target. And so we're now really focused on taking a species level approach to protecting these species that are declining um, rather than doing it once they get on the endangered species list. So we've got this group called Road to Recovery that's really working hard on this and it's gaining, gaining enormous amounts of steam. So we're hopeful. I'm hope, hoping that uh, species like golden-winged warbler will eventually, in, in 10 years, will be having a conversation about how they've recovered, much like the osprey has recovered. And, and people like Brooke that are now seeing ospreys um, as adults that didn't see them as kids will be seeing lots of golden-winged warblers and withrush and common nighthawks uh, in their future. When we think about updating conservation tools, which we talked about earlier, thinking about maybe updating some of the federal laws that we have in place, uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, uh, some updates that are needed, uh, Pete? Yeah, there's, there are lots of updates that are needed. Um, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was a, a wonderful piece of legislation that's done great things and continues to do great things. But it's not as international as it needs to be. And one thing that we know is that all these species spread out across the Western Hemisphere. So we need to start thinking about legislation. And there actually is legislation, something called the Western Hemisphere Convention. And we need to start working more carefully with legislation like that to bring in more of our international partners in, on, to the table to think about how we can protect this environment 
uh, and, the, and the habitats and, and reduce the threats that are impacting all these species. And it's not just our birds, it's their birds as well. It's their other organisms that are in these international locations that, that matter to all of us on this globe. And, and so ultimately it's gonna be making those policies, putting those policies into place, making them more impactful and effective that it's gonna, uh, it's, it's gonna be our success story. Um, but it is an international problem. It's not just a problem in Connecticut. It's not just a problem in, in, in um, Illinois or, or in DC. It's a, it's a global issue, and we've got to approach these issues from an international perspective. And before I take another call, I wanted to go back to Brooke Bateman from National Audubon Society when we were talking about uh, natural climate solutions, because you're talking to a Connecticut audience, thinking about as a state uh, what we can do uh, and, and maybe um, help boost a regional effort when we think about making you know, carbon neutral um, and some other efforts uh, to restore habitat, Brooke. Yeah, so natural climate solutions are a wonderful opportunity. They can offer up to a third of the uh, the climate stabilization mitigation efforts that we need. And within Connecticut, there's actually a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, over 85% of the state has an opportunity, whether that be to maintain ecosystems that are currently storing a lot of carbon, and that's through protection or, or, or sustainable management. And so um, there's one, over 1.2 million acres across the state that already are storing over 500 million tons of carbon and sequestering, like actively pulling over a million tons of carbon per year on average. So that means they're really contributing to climate change. So we have a lot of opportunities to keep these forest systems um, and these healthy ecosystems intact. But we also have um, more than double the opportunity in areas to restore. And so that includes our forests, our coastal areas, our urban areas. Um, we have a lot of opportunity to restore habitats, which means that they will improve their capacity to store carbon and to also um, continue to store carbon into the future. And so this is things like planting um, native plants in your backyard. This is a contribution that you can contribute towards natural climate solutions. This is protecting healthy forest systems. This is restoring marshlands that have been degraded. And the, the wonderful thing about natural climate solutions is that they are gonna benefit birds and other nature, but they're also gonna pr promote resilience in our system. And so, for example, if you look at coastal marshland, if we restore a good amount of coastal marshland in Connecticut, it will not only provide um, habitat for birds, it will also protect us from inundation, from storm surge, from, from hurricanes, from sea level rise, and it will make our entire coastal ecosystem a lot more uh, resilient to climate change and, and these big uh, events, while also providing habitat for birds that are already seeing declines and will continue to see declines if we, if we don't do anything. So I think Connecticut has a lot of opportunities um, across many ecosystems for people to get involved. I want to take uh, one more quick call before we head uh, to break. Victoria in West Haven. Victoria, you're on the show. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to just go off of what you just said, actually. Um, I'm a, just a community member, um, but I really enjoy birds and so I looked into volunteer opportunities with the Connecticut Audubon Society, and I um, started being an osprey steward um, over the past couple of years. And I just wanted to bring awareness to other people that are interested in birds and um, conserving their environment and habitat, and um, just that regular community members can also do a part in just observing ospreys throughout the year and taking notes and um, giving that information to the Audubon Society. 
Well, thank you, Victoria, for your call. We're going to be hearing from Tom Anderson with the Connecticut Audubon Society in just a couple of minutes. But I want to thank uh, some of the scientists that were on with us, Brooke Bateman, Director of Climate Science at National Audubon Society. She's based in Long Island. Brooke, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us, me this morning. And then Peter Marrow is here, Professor of Biology and Environment and the Director of the Earth Commons at Georgetown University Institute for Environment and Sustainability. Peter, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Up next, we hear from the Connecticut Audubon Society about the latest State of the Birds report. If you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, more than $100 million in federal infrastructure funds will go toward protecting Long Island Sound. Tomorrow, we talk to soundkeeper Bill Lucy about efforts to improve water quality, restore habitats, and more. And we hear from a local fisherman about why conservation is their business. That conversation tomorrow. Now, each year, Connecticut Audubon Society releases a State of the Birds report, a call to action to respond to the crisis impacting birds due to climate change and habitat loss and other factors. We talked to some of the scientists featured in this year's report. And joining us now is Tom Anderson. He edited State of the Birds, and he's Director of Communications at the Connecticut Audubon Society. Tom, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Lucy. And so uh, we've got lots of uh, questions uh, from listeners on social I want to uh, pose to you as well. But uh, when we think about this call to action, you know, some of the other recommendations from this report that you want to share, Tom? Yeah, sure. There are plenty, actually. The recommendations are on the last two pages of the report. Um, one of the things that we think it's really important to do is to pass legislation in Washington called the um, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, um, It has bipartisan support, but not enough bipartisan support over the years. Um, If if that is passed, it would direct about $1.3 billion of existing revenues annually to the states for wildlife conservation efforts. And it's estimated that it would bring $12.6 million a year uh, just into to Connecticut, which is almost a tenfold increase on what the state spends now um, to implement its its congressionally mandated wildlife action plans. So that that's really a, a, another big one. Um, and um, we also think that throughout the state of Connecticut, um, the pace of land protection needs to be increased. Uh, the state has not come close to its official goal of protecting 21% of land in Connecticut. Um, by 2023. Uh, and at, at this point, um, if, as Brooke Bateman suggested, suggested, we focus on areas that are identified as uh, climate strongholds um, in, in Audubon's Natural Climate Solutions Report, um, we can really um, accomplish two things, protect bird habitat throughout the state and protect the parts of the state that are most important for climate mitigation. Uh, David's calling in from West Hartford. David, uh, what's your question? Oh, yes. I'm commenting on Peter Morrow's observation that habitat loss is the principal threat to Connecticut's most imperiled species. 
And I want to remind listeners that Connecticut has an Endangered Species Act of its own that's intended to address these types of threats. But in my opinion, it's a it's a rather limited or ineffective way for protecting habitats that serve endangered species, and that it principally only applies to state agency actions rather than municipal actions. And it also provides for exemptions that allow state agencies to allow activities that adversely affect our most imperiled species in their habitats. And I'm wondering if the Connecticut Audubon and others would be working on trying to bolster or increase the protections provided by the Connecticut Endangered Species Act. Good question. Tom? Um, improving the Connecticut Endangered Species Act is not one of our immediate priorities. Um, there are other, other things going on in Hartford and Washington that we think would be um, better for getting the both short-term and long-term gains. Um, the ones I just mentioned, for example, um, picking up the pace of land protection in Connecticut would, would go a long way to that, toward, toward that. Uh, and um, in, in Washington, in addition to the Recovering, American, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, we think that um, there's a new version of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act um, that's before both houses of Congress. We think that ought to be passed as well. Um, uh, which is not to say that improving endangered species protection in Connecticut isn't important, um, but there are lots of species, as Pete Mara said, that are not quite endangered yet, but seem to be on the path going there. And, and we would like to see those birds um, never make it to that point. When we talk about individual action, uh, Leslie had tweeted, you know, there are still lawn services who spread pesticides that poison worms and bugs, and then that eventually impacts birds. And so, you know, how do these chemicals compare to, you know, obviously DDT that we knew was so detrimental and laws were passed to keep that um, from um, destroying uh, the, the raptor population? You know, why are these chemicals still legal? She wants to know, Tom. <laughs> that's a that's a big question. Those chemicals are still legal because the lawn care industry and the agricultural industries are powerful in, in Connecticut and they don't want to see them change. Um, we're strong advocates of uh, better pesticide regulations and of individual decisions to stop using pesticides. If you if you spray to kill mosquitoes, for example, you're killing lots of things besides mosquitoes. Um, that, and many of those things turn out to be food for birds. Um, and so our, our strong recommendation, and we have this in numerous places on our, our, on our website. Um, uh, in fact, we have a page, ctaudubon.org slash help birds. Uh, our strong recommendation is to um, pass stronger pesticide regulations and for individual homeowners to just stop using those kinds of chemicals. We heard earlier from a caller who's a volunteer, and I wanted you to talk more about the role of, of local residents, citizen scientists in the collection of data, but also working on many of these uh, initiatives that we've mentioned, Tom. Yeah, Victoria, who called before, what she was referring to uh, is our Osprey Nation um, data collection uh, program. It's been going on since 2014. Um, we just released the 2021 report about two or so, two or so weeks ago. We have a, um, over the years, since 2014, we've had about 700 Connecticut residents volunteer to go out a couple times a month and collect data on osprey nests. 
um, and report that to us and we put it all on a map on our website. And the reason for that is because, um, as, as Pete mentioned, the ospreys declined in the 1950s and 1960s and that, that decline was eventually traced to the use of the pesticide DDT. If we know, if we have a good handle now on the size of the population and on the population trends, we'll be able to see if the population declines. And that will be a strong indication, again, that there's some contaminant in the environment that's, that's uh, harming the birds. So uh, Osprey Nation is our um, citizen science project to, to uh, collect the data that would identify those trends. Uh, we also have a project, um, smaller in scale, but just as important, called the, the Audubon Alliance for Coastal Waterbirds, where volunteers and staff and the Connecticut Department of Environmental of energy and environmental protection, um, monitor and protect the birds like the piping plover and the American oyster catchers that nest on Connecticut's beaches. And that has been very successful in stabilizing and increasing the populations, uh, particularly of, of piping plo plovers, which are endangered in Connecticut uh, and threatened federally. I mentioned the citizen scientist role. Coming up, uh, there's a bird count that people can get involved in, Tom. Can you tell us more? The um, Audubon Christmas Bird Count, um, it happens every year, the weeks leading up to and after um, Christmas. It's had uh, different dates in different parts of the state, and that's um, well over 100 years old by now. It's it's probably the oldest citizen science project, and, and bird enthusiasts throughout Connecticut and throughout the country go out and uh, um, simply identify as many species as they can and count the number of individual birds. Um, Pete Mara mentioned that <clears throat> the report that he co-authored um, in, in the journal Science that documented the loss of three billion birds relied on those citizen science data sets like the um, Audubon Christmas bird count. So it, it's, it's a, a it's a fun thing to do if you're interested in birds um, and you, you're looking for a way to get outside in the middle of winter, but it's also an important thing to do. It provided some of the data uh, for that paper that, that Pete and his colleagues published in Science. Mm. Sue's calling in from Killingworth. Sue, what did you want to share? Oh, doesn't look like Sue's there anymore, but she did want to comment about the cat population decimating birds. Also, um, Elaine from Mystic had called in and says that uh, she belongs to three cat clubs on Facebook, and organizers have told everyone not to shame other cat owners for letting their cats go outside. And so, you know, this this is kind of, a, when we talk about this, you know, people have strong feelings, right? Because uh, some believe that cats should go outside. So I'm wondering from the Connecticut Audubon Society's perspective, you know, how do you keep having this discussion about the impact on birds, Tom? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm not, we, Connecticut Audubon is a, a strong supporter of keeping cats indoors. Um, and we realize that it's a, an extremely difficult thing. There are a couple parts of the problem. There are people who have individual cats um, and anyone who owns a cat that has been an outdoor cat uh, or an out or an outdoor slash indoor cat knows that it's extremely difficult to to convert that that pet essentially into just an indoor cat. But also there are places where there are feral um, populations of feral uh, uh, cats that are um, doing great harm to wildlife in the state and not just birds. Um, it it is a 
Um, if you're asking me how do how do we convince people to to uh, to take action on this, I, that that's a unfortunately is a question that I don't have the answer to. Mm. Uh, this State of the Birds report again uh, being released today, and we think about the recommendations that we've gone over. You know, is this top of mind for state lawmakers or the governor? How do we get local policymakers thinking about um, the steps that they can take uh, to help with habitat loss, with climate yeah, that, change? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's an interesting question. People always want to know what they can do, and. Um, I saw somewhere it might have been Bill McKibben, the climate activist and writer, who who said that you know if 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 every if 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 there's a like a broad public education campaign, um, you can expect maybe three or four percent of the population to 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 um, take heed of the campaign and do what it suggests. But if that same three or four percent of the population bands together and advocates and lobbies um, its elected officials. Um, uh, it has a far bigger effect than just the, the, the three or four percent than you think three or four percent of the people could could accomplish. So um, our, when we put out lists of the of ways people can help birds, our number one activity is always to advocate. Um, and to do that, you really need to to um, to work with a Connecticut based conservation organization. We have a um, uh, we have an advocacy program where we pick our spots, but for the right issues, we we send out action alerts, and and you know if we ask several several hundred people or more, we'll then contact their um, elected officials to try to get specific bills passed. So, um, I, I would say if people are looking for something to do, one of the one of the most important and most effective things you could do is is um, join up with a with a conservation organization and, and advocate effectively for better lo- better laws. Well, this was a, a well written report, the 2021 Connecticut State of the Birds report that uh, you can get more information about if you head to CT Audubon's website, ctaudubon.org. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, we talk about birds uh, occasionally on the show, and I liked what uh, Pete Mara said that birds connect people to the environment like no other organism in the natural world. And, you know, the importance of when uh, they're in trouble, how it impacts all of us. Thank you, Tom, for your time today. Uh, You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having us. That's Tom Anderson, Director of Communications for the Connecticut Audubon Society. He edited the 2021 Connecticut State of the Birds Report. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Katie Pellico was on the phones. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We hope you tune in again tomorrow for our conversation with Long Island soundkeeper Bill Lucy.